It's time to talk music, audio gear, and anything else that crosses our minds. I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. And welcome to the Hareton Audio Podcast. So, Taylor Swift is back with a brand new version of 1989, Taylor's version. And um, it's looking, well, it sounded really good. It's really, really interesting with something like 1989, because I think, obviously, a lot of Taylor Swift's albums are very, very popular in their own right, and a lot of people know them in extreme depth. But I think for us personally, 1989, with us not being super, super aware of it as an artist up until like the singles that came out on Red, when she started to break into the pop mainstream, 1989 is the first of the Taylor's versions that I am very familiar with the original version of the album. So like when I've listened to red for example it's been like a bit of a breath of fresh air because i'm like well i don't really i only really heard trouble a couple of times and we're never ever getting back together and i didn't really know a lot of the rest of the song so you know you just listen to it with fresh ears and i thought well you know that's fine and the songs are cool but with 1989 i know a lot of the songs not all of them because i didn't really listen to the deluxe songs very much but songs like Style, Blank Space, Out of the Woods, I mean, most most of the album, to be honest, all the singles and a lot of the other tracks are super familiar. So when, um, when you listen through Taylor's version, it's like this bizarre thing of, you know that it's all been re-recorded, but they've done it to such, like the lengths they must have gone through to get the sounds like as similar as possible or exact must have been really really excruciatingly painful because you've got to remember and it, most people probably know this if the Taylor Swift fans but this album is like a pop production masterclass because all the songs are, are like or most of the songs are mixed and produced by like Max Martin and Shellback and Ryan Tedder so it's like and, and the songwriters obviously with um, Ryan Tedder them two and um, Jack Antonov as well a frequent collaborator to recreate these like producers and these um, sort of ideas that they would bring to the table and do it again, like less than 10 years after doing it in the first place must've been like exhausting. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is, is there's one thing re-recording a project and sort of doing your own spin on it. But when you're trying to do a one-to-one recreation, that's where the difficulties creep in because there's one thing to say sing a song like out of the woods and then stack the harmonies up and 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 layer the track like the original it's another thing to start redoing every single ad lib the same it's the same ad lib in the same place on a lot of these songs so that is where the skill of sort of recreating it like like repainting a picture basically having to put all of the colors and all the little bits in but then the details these little ad-libs that they don't need to put in but obviously if you know the song the original recording back to back you know every word you know every single ad-lib so if an ad-lib is different or missing this is a little bit like what bands have when they don't do the guitar solo that's on the record live as a listener you are expecting something to be there and when it isn't there you are a lot of the time disappointed yeah because you know you know it and it's all repetition and it's like say as well as that 
say on a song like Welcome to New York, when they're in the studio first time round, they'll have been like bouncing ideas around going, well, what if we did this? What if we did that? When they go to do the Taylor's versions one, I mean, when you listen to it, they're so like identical in, in a certain capacity that it's not really like, oh, well, what should we do? Where could this go? It's like, well, that's where it's going. This is what it is. Now, how do we do that as fast as possible? And like for the fans who know it. And the, the worst thing is, is that like people will sit there, they'll put the album on and they'll be like, you know, they know this album like back to front in front to back and they, you know, they know every single sound. So it's like when you put the Taylor's versions on, you know, like when they've been in there making it, they know people are going to be pouring over every tiny little detail, every delay through every ad lib, as you said, Mark, and every synth sound, like fortunately, like if you look, if you get the physical copy, it actually says which synths they've used on a lot of the tracks and a bit like, um, on Midnight's, there's a lot of Junos and a lot of hardware, like Prophets style synths and even like a, an OP1 from Teenage Engineering, which fortunately for them, they can rely on, hopefully, a lot of either prefab sort of sounds that they use off these hardware keyboards or the keyboards are limited in a capacity where they can look and go, well, it's a Juno, it's a saw with a filter here. Let's just whip that up real quick. Whereas if every single track was like, well, we made this on like Serum or Massive and we lost the patch and it was all like meticulously poured over, like maybe something like what Skrillex or somebody like Calvin Harris might be doing. It would be such a pain to to do that. And the other thing is like, if they used old keyboards that they no longer had, access to that's that would make it a lot harder but luckily like we're talking like what what you would call studio bread and butter synths like this is what not necessarily everybody has but this is what everybody wants synth wise like with junos yeah. and profits it tends to be what big producers gravitate towards it's like the classics you know it's like your your orange juice and strawberry juice or I, like, I would say like a primary color it's yeah, almost like a, a production primary color is having a juno or something you know it's not unexpected it's not unfamiliar but it's you know it's satisfying and you see it and you know what it is or you hear it and you know what it is it makes you wonder when they get to reputation where the sound design is drastically different and a lot less familiar and a lot more cutting edge how easily it's going to be for them to recreate every single sound because there's a little bit of difference like you'll hear some of the chimey sounds are just ever so slightly different. And you would only be, be able to pick up on it if you listen to the songs back to back and started comparing them. You would maybe hear like, oh, well, that, that's a little bit more like punchy and that's a little bit brighter and just little things, but almost unnoticeable. Like you could play this album to somebody who knows the original back to back and they might not even realize they're not listening to it. Yeah. I mean, occasionally I've had to check on Spotify which version, like if I've been listening to a playlist, I've added this one. Uh, the Taylor's version to a playlist. And then I was listening to Out of the Woods and I went, well, let me just check which version it is. And it was the the original one. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting because it's, you know, if you don't immediately know, then they've done their jobs. They've done their jobs at recreating this sound, which is, I mean, again, to Im to not to imitate, but to recreate what some of the most like legendary producers of this era has done on a fairly cutting edge album from less than 10 years ago to do that with whatever team Taylor's got 
is pretty much incredible. Like, and and also though, like even in isolation, even if if she had she and her team had like a couple of years to make this album, just to do it to this level of detail is astounding. But when you think like how many she's dropped in like the past year, like at least midnight's what and, and speak now as well. At least, yeah, this year. Including this. And and then, obviously, as well, they've got all the original bonus tracks and then a bunch of um, the uh, From the Vault tracks, which have all been very good on this, like she was saying on their puzzle thing, that they're the best Vault tracks. I think most of them feature Jack Antonov as well as a co-writer. So it, it must be, um, like, it makes sense coming off of Midnight's um, to sort of have that because he was a co-writer on most of that as well. So it's it's very it's very enjoyable, but I think also like there's a couple of um pop culture things where like MTV's been talking about it, like it feels like it's 2014, 15 again, because these songs were so like ubiquitous of that that year. And like, I, you I, couldn't get away from them. Another quite odd thing that Taylor Swift's fan base is experiencing is how many fan bases get to experience an album coming out twice. And with the same level of fanfare, like I, I, like you think about classic rock acts, when, say, Starship goes to re-record We Built This City, it's not a global fanfare in, like, the mainstream. It's like, oh, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. it's for the fans. Whereas this is, you know, this is equally for the fans, but it's still like a global fanfare of, oh my God, this is out and it's massive. And there's not, people aren't ignoring it. You know, it's not like you could, I mean, how could you possibly look away? Everybody knows like she's like, like one of the biggest, or maybe at this point, the biggest like artists like on the planet in a certain capacity, because I mean, how we've talked about this a lot. How, how could anybody top this like, run of albums in such a quick succession. I mean, the the Taylor's version has 21 songs on, and then there's also some deluxe tracks. And I couldn't believe it when I saw that there was Target bonus tracks that aren't even on, like the Spotify 22 song version would be, because Kendrick Lamar's done his uh, part on Bad Blood as well for the deluxe on Spotify. But then there's more songs. And it's like, how many songs could there be? And how organized, like, do you have to be as an artist to say, right, this year we're going to put off, put out like 60, 70 odd tracks. It's crazy. And like we say, when we was talking about quantity versus quality, this is where the argument for, well, you can have a quantity of quality. Like yeah. non, none of these are done in a rush. None of them are subpar in any way. But obviously if you're a Taylor Swift fan, you're getting like 50 to 80 songs a year whereas other fan bases may get 11 or 12. And the thing is, is that they're not getting any less quality. If anything, they're getting more quality than the vast majority of music that's coming out because of the level of detail that's gone into all of this, both from the the, the marketing fanfare side, but also like when you listen to it, you can see that they care about what they're doing and that they're still interested. Most people, given Taylor Swift's situation, would have said, I'll just record 20 of the greatest hits and that'll be it, a one-and-done album. Whereas to painstakingly go through every single one of the six albums 
and not go halfway through, ah, oh, you know what, we've done two of them and we can't be bothered to do the yeah, rest. Because a lot of a lot of artists would have promised what Taylor Swift promised, said, I'm going to give you six albums re-recorded. Let, let's forget about the vault tracks now. But six albums to re-record is practically impossible. And to, to think that we're on album four of that run and she hasn't just like completely burnt out or given up and she's put albums out in between is miraculous. Like we were saying earlier, wasn't we? Like, could you imagine any rock band being able to re-record one of their best albums? They would struggle because a lot of the bands, they make you, you occasionally see like a re-recorded greatest hits album or our favorite picks and they'll, they'll do it. But, but a lot of bands would typically just go like, let's just do it live in the room and then get somebody to mix it, not do the full studio thing. But also they won't pick every song they'll pick the songs that they play live and they know they can do it quickly because they play that set live all of the time whereas this is like right let's get the songs that people haven't heard let's get the songs that people didn't hear live and the songs that they don't even play live um i'm assuming taylor swift's probably played all of these songs live because that's the sort of artist she is uh, at some point anyway but um like I say, it's just a commitment thing. And a lot of bands do the re-recorded greatest hits because they, they play those songs every night. They can just go into a studio and do it all in one night and then say, Leave mix it to somebody it. else. But they're not trying to recreate the sounds. And that's like, if if a band was doing it to this level, it'd be like, well, how do we get, say if it's like Blue Oyster Cult, how do we get it to sound like the first one? That technology barely even exists anymore. Yeah. Luckily, yeah. Taylor Swift doesn't have that issue so much because the albums are relatively new in like recorded music you're not having to fight oh let's try and find a tape machine let's do this let's do that you know it's relatively new i do think one of the main advantages in a certain sense they have on 1989 is the fact that a lot of it is drum machine or groove box sequencer based for the for the drums and percussion and a lot of the instrumentation as well is is synth so it's not like say on Speak Now and... and Fearless. Fearless, yeah. They had to get a band in the room. They had to try and capture that performance, that energy, the, like the magic in a bottle thing with well, a know, full group. It, Whereas this is more, you can do most of it. A lot of it can be an ear producer who knows what they're doing, who's got the equipment, who can just do it in a, like a box. But in a lot of ways, that actually makes this album a lot harder. Now, for Fearless you could approach it uh, as you've got your session cat country band. They've rehearsed the songs. They go into the studio, cut the full thing in one afternoon. This, you would not be able to do that for. True. So yeah. that's the, the benefit. If you have the entire thing being an acoustic drum kit and a few string instruments, that's something you can get a band they can rehearse and they can cut the full instrumental album in two or three days. If they're being very meticulous about it and obviously everybody's well rehearsed and they've had weeks and well months of rehearsals to do each song oh but say, saying that as well um i mean I, i'm just guessing but i would imagine the bands like a nashville with it being country they'll have had country session sort of artist people and mm. they're the sort of people who could probably as you say read read the charts and just do it yeah they could like read in sheet like a week music. You could if get, they're that good get professionals who can just read the sheet music and have like the the level where they can throw a bit of flair on it, but you know, they can just read through it. They can do that. Whereas like with this, you're having to 
meticulously recreate like these drum sequences, which isn't necessarily a hard thing to do, but it's a lot more of a painstakingly like studio, like, you know, you've got to program it all in and go, well, what patch did we use? Well, does it, does it sound like this? Do we get a different patch or do we look for the same one? Whereas with an acoustic guitar, it it doesn't really matter which acoustic guitar it's played on or what drum kit it's played on. Do you know what I mean? Whereas like, yeah, to if a certain you use extent. A, a Roland 909 instead of an 808, that's going to make a massive difference. And also like the, the way pop production is, like a lot of what they are having to reproduce is effects, like delay swells, um reverb like echoes at the end of songs like you impacts. think about the end of yeah impacts like yeah. these non-musical sound i mean when you listen to the original version there's a lot of white noise and rises and just overall non-musical effects being used and they're the things that it's quite easy if you're just looking going you know say you're studying music and you're like i need to cover this song i need to reproduce this song by myself or with a, a set of instruments blah 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 they're the first things to go are like white noise, spatial effects, like different, like, you know, cause it's, cause it's Max Martin producing like a lot of the original one. Who knows what weird stuff like psychoacoustic layering, crowd noise, um, just broken. Like his, one of his things that he said when he was producing music of the spheres by a co-player is they love like keyboards that aren't working properly. So if you, if you've recorded, say a song like blank space with, a, a Juno that has a fault, say a broken chorus or something's like not working quite right or the keyboard's just got a funky thing about it. When you go, you might say, well, let's get the Roland Cloud uh, Juno 106, blah, 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 because it's perfect. You can tweak it and you can make it whatever you want. That little imperfection on the keyboard could be the thing that gives that song that, you know, that special sauce. So it's like, that's why I think this is such a miraculous task that they've done it so well at first i didn't know whether there was going to approach it from like a more of a reimagining of each album but as it's gone along obviously as we know 1989 is a lot more familiar but like even with trouble and stuff i was surprised at how similar they was getting it to sound like that that you know obviously there's two choices when re-recording it's do we reinterpret this full album slightly differently which is what most people do because if you reinterpret an album, you don't have to worry about people, you know, nitpicking about, oh, well, that's slightly different and this is slightly different. If you reinterpret it completely, it's a different version. Therefore, nobody can really critique it. They can say, well, it doesn't sound like the original, but you've got the original. Yeah, and it's a lot funner in the room. But I suppose the hair issue is she doesn't have the original. Well, that's it. For hair, like hair full drive for this is like she feels as if, the song has been stolen from her. Like her full thing is that she's reclaimed this album. That's what it says in, in all of the material, the advertised material in the book. So it's really, it's really hard because I think there will be a lot of people who listen to these songs. Would this be in a more prolific album and a more mainstream album than any of the other Taylor's versions? This is going to be one that might leave people saying, well, why would you do this? I mean, I know Swift is no why. But like, does does like Greg who hears the song like every day at like uh, a till checkout on the radio, does he get why this is happening? Do you know what I mean? Does that actually connect with with people who don't really care? And also, does it matter if they connect or not? You know, these are questions you could ask. But 
I think the idea of it is just like from a production standpoint, you can't help but just marvel at at the achievement of it because most artists can't recreate their best songs. And also a lot of artists would want to try to improve and improving is also changing. Yes. Like some artists might go, well, I never liked the original track listing. So let me start reorganizing. Let me start tampering with it. Obviously. Yeah, let me start adding some some stuff that I'm into now here. Let me let me let me start you know interspersing the new tracks as track one and two. So that's what you hear first on the album instead of last. But Taylor Swift has kept it like the original. You know that is a very good point. The vault tracks have never been interspersed on any of these releases, have they? Yeah. So that that is a real and even the deluxe tracks, I believe, are in yeah. the same order. You would think that Taylor Swift would want people to hear the music that she hasn't put out first when you say if you've got a cd player or even on spot because this is more applicable because of the streaming culture on spotify i can't even see the bonus songs when we're looking at the album we get up to song eight bad blood that's what we see you have to scroll all the way down and obviously the way a lot of spotify works is obviously you'll get the most streams at the top apart from playlisting but if you're listening through an album there tends to be a drop off on the last few tracks because people don't tend to go all the way down i will say from from the current spotify sort of the way it's reflected there's sort of with the exception of wildest dreams and this love which came out earlier so they've got a massively inflated um, number compared to the rest of the album it sort of does a slight drop couple of million drops starts with like 14 15 million the singles have a tiny bit more on average and then it sort of drops back down to like 8 million before the vault tracks before the vault tracks but the, the new romantics i wonder if this is because some people i mean i know it says from the vault on the ones but again with the deluxe songs i kept listening to wonderland going is that a new song i thought because i just listened i wasn't looking at the track listing so i thought is wonderland a new song because the version that i listened to only went up to clean so I think there's a bit of confusion maybe from less dedicated fans over where the new songs start because I suppose whether they're from the vault or not, if you never listened to the deluxe, say you had a CD player, you bought the CD and you just smashed the CD all the time, you didn't bother looking for any other songs. Wonderland, Wonderland, You Are In Love and You Romantics, you're like, oh, well, we got more new songs. You know, I'd never listened to them, for example, and, and that would be the case for a lot of people because you know, the deluxe version, some of these albums can be quite hard to attain if you buy physical, but also sometimes when you're on Spotify, you just click on 1989. You don't, you don't even think, oh, I'll check the deluxe out. Sometimes that doesn't occur to people. Yeah. And this is also like the thing when we're looking at all these, like say 22 songs, including Bad Blood twice, technically on this version that we're looking at. Um, some people don't listen to the albums in full. You're like yeah. the average music listener. They'll just listen to the singles. So, you know, if you if you listen to the singles on 1989, this is going to feel like a very new experience. But it all, I suppose with all six of these albums, it all depends on which album you know in full. If you know any of them in full. Because if you know an album back to back, say you've listened to it driving to work or just it's one of your favourite albums that you've put on and you listen to it over and over again when you was growing up, you're going to know every single bit of the album. But a lot of people very passively listen to music now. Even if they go see every tour, some people don't listen to the full album because they never buy the CD and just put it on. They'll just cue a few songs oh, like on Spotify. They might be like, oh, I'll just check out this is Taylor Swift and not bother and and whatever songs say aren't in that playlist then maybe they don't bother listening to because they like taylor swift as an artist 
but they're not bothered about doing the full discography thing. And I think that is very common because I think if you, uh, we're both very inclined to get really into the, the discography thing. And I, I found myself being a bit annoyed that when whenever I read that there's a Target edition with us being from the UK, and I'm like, I can't get that track. And that's going to annoy me now because I, I like to have all the tracks. I like Japanese bonus tracks yeah. can become a real point of frustration, particularly if they're good songs in comparison to the other songs on the album. Like if you've bought an album and you go, oh, the Japanese bonus track isn't on it. And then you find and say the Japanese bonus track on YouTube and listen to it and go, well, that's better than like four of the songs on the album. Yeah, it's frustrating. It's, it's annoying. I like to say Toto's The Seventh Son, the, the Japanese bonus track is the title track. Which is so frustrating, like, because you go, you just don't remember it because it's not on the CD. You don't hear it as often if you're in that ecosystem. And a lot of the time, the Japanese bonus tracks don't appear on UK Spotify. Yeah, they're, they're, they're often um, region locked. So then they? it's just lost to you as a fan. And you're, you just feel like, well, yeah, I've got no incentive. There, there was a lot of people when I was, because um, I saw it, I think I saw it on threads about this track. Um, I can't remember the name of it now. Um that it was for one of the, um, I think for a movie that she'd done in the same time frame as 1989, which is why it's the target bonus track. And there was loads of people like, where's the MP3? Does anybody want to give me an MP3? I think somebody had ripped a vinyl and it was like, here's a vinyl rip, but I don't have the MP3. And loads of people were like, it's good enough. Well, yeah, because um, people want the songs because yeah. you feel like, you know, and I, I suppose in a way it's crazy how, how deep these albums are and then you go they're still missing songs it's, it's like how many thing. songs can there be you know if you was a collector for taylor swift you are either loving your life or hating your life because there's so many editions well, of so many albums of, on so many different medias it's like if you're the sort of person who wants to own everything she's made and manufactured down to the merch you're going to have a tough time because there's so much of it. I mean, I saw that um, on, there's a Discogs article. If you want, if you like collecting and like the idea of a music collection, Discogs is a great site to go to. But they was running an article about Taylor Swift, like the most collectible Taylor Swift physical releases. And one of them was a midnight CD that had all of the 3am tracks on. And you could only buy it. It was limited and it was sold when Midnight's came out, I believe, and only to ticket holders of the tour. So that one is one where you're like, you know, if you just, because I like to buy, like I'll buy a lot of the Taylor Swift, all the Taylor's versions I think I've bought on um, her site, because sometimes you get stuff, I don't know. Or you get de- definitely get special boxes, like diff- like uh, limited edition boxes and limited that- edition stuff in it that are exclusively timed on her site yeah this is why i say about collectors struggling because you'd have to buy the album a bit like a k-pop fan 10 to 12 times to have all the different versions and all the different tracks but it would be nice if if you go to her site and she gets a lot more revenue i mean i was i was looking on spotify it just says 2023 taylor swift not 2023 republic records not not in partnership no none of that just taylor swift so if this is a truly truly independent release which might have to do some digging into the licensing for that if that's truly independent then oh my god maybe that's what factors into her billionaire status yeah but um if when she did the albums they put all of the tracks that you could get as a special like 
special edition version physically, I think a lot of people like myself who just like to get as many tracks as they can would get it, you know, because it's it's nice when you buy, like, especially when you, you're buying Deluxe and you look and go, well, it's Deluxe because it's got pictures in it. And I'm like, well, I guess, you know, it's still a spicy version, but it's not got the tracks. It's like the, the Bad Blood featuring Kendrick Lamar. It's like, why ain't that all man? Man's a limited, you know, a special version. And you think, you know, surely somebody could have just given me the extra track. So doing <laughs> some very factual digging, uh, according to Wikipedia, the label is Republic. Okay, that, makes, obviously that, that is, is what I would have thought, but I didn't know what the licensing on, on the uh, Spotify was talking about. That, of course, is Wikipedia, though. So obviously <laughs> you take it with a grain of salt is probably correct. Yeah. It would make sense if it was on Republic because I imagine Republic wouldn't be too happy if they got all the other Taylor's versions, but not 1989, which let's all be honest, is expected to outsell the rest. It's that's This is the one that I think a lot of the mainstream culture is, is after. It's also crazy to me when you look at Taylor Swift's studio albums, discography, that from Reputation... In two, uh, 2017, to the re-recording of Fearless, she managed to release Lovers, Folklore, and Evermore in basically one year. Like, when you look at it, she's managed to, to put four albums, basically, in between. Obviously, the re-recorded albums come up as a separate tab, which overlaps Midnight's. But, like, a lot of artists would have been like, right, I've just released my sixth album, now I've got to go back to the first album. But because she's just really put out so much music you almost feel like she's done two decades of releasing material in like five years well i mean like within a a lot of bands really and a lot of artists solo artists however you spin it anybody in the creative field who makes records a lot of people don't get to four or five albums and a lot of the biggest artists going i mean a lot of them are only on like the third album. You're looking, they've been going like 10, 15 years. Or some people say like um, some of the solo female solo artists, like say Ray or, or BB Rex and stuff, they've said that they're not allowed to make albums yeah, because they their the label wants them to just keep making singles, despite the fact that they want to make an album worth of material. And this is where you've heard a lot of like, industry disputes and people rejecting the labels and trying to to void the contracts because they're trying to do this for example because everybody if you're a musician you want to make an album obviously record labels want people to just stream singles they don't care i mean but as a creative person or any sort of artist if you're if you've got on a major label you've got on it to make an album most likely yeah not just to make money. I mean, can can you imagine Universal, Sony, or um, what's the last one, big three? Universal, Sony. I was going to say BMG, but that's not right. No, is yeah, it? Sony, BMG, Universal, and that's the one's going to be obvious, but I can't remember it now. Well, it was EMI, wasn't it? Or was no, because EMI, EMI got liquidated. That was the fourth, and now I can't remember the third one. Do you want me to Google it? Um, yeah, you can do. But the big three record, major record labels, even with an artist like Taylor Swift, where they know it's basically like printing money for them. I don't think that they would let her do this because they're all about this momentum thing. Well, you've got to do an album 
And then you've got a tour for Yes, man. Uh, the big three is Universal Music Group, Sony Music Entertainment, and Warner Music Warner. Group. How could I forget Warner? Anyway, them three, I don't even think they would let um, Taylor Swift do it in this rapid succession because they would say, well, you don't you just pick the best songs and make one album with the best songs. But sometimes, like, like as we say all the time, like, what's the best song? Well, yeah. Also, just as a note, Republic Records is owned by Universal Music. Is it really? It is. But obviously, there's like a bit of separation there. Whether yes. they've acquired them or however that's gone down, uh, they are technically, this is on Universal Music. But as as we say, like a, a label, a label slash, it's not a sticker label, is it? It's like a proper group, like a, a create, a bit like Dirty Hit is, where it's on Polydor and Polydor's what on Universal, I want to say as well. This is the problem with the labels, they're a nightmare. But anyway, the people at Republic make the decisions and they know what they're doing. Because when you see everybody flocks to Republic, and I wonder if they flock to Republic because it's a subsidiary. So obviously I've just typed Republic Records on Google. Um, is Republic Records a good label? A division of Universal Music Group, the world's leading music company, obviously they're going to say that, Republic Records has been recognised by Billboard as the industry's number one label over the last 10 years. And I wonder why. Well, they just seem to let people do it at once. I say everybody who gets off their contract early seems to go to Republic. So whatever they're doing, I mean, maybe they just say, look, do your thing, we'll figure it out. But they seem to have no issue with people like Taylor Swift putting out multiple, I mean, even three. The idea of people at Taylor Swift's level putting out two albums in a year is still, I think, borderline frowned upon, especially as an industry practice. And like we say, right, we, we, me and Peter's been talking about this all the time. The thing is, right, is, is people say, well, you need people to wait to get excited and get the money together, you know, for the new album and the new tour. Well, Taylor Swift's proving that people will get the wallets out every time something's released, whether or not it was last week, or, or a day ago, people are ready to pre-order it en masse. But the other thing is that with the way streaming culture is, you are inclined to listen to a two-hour podcast every week. Well, an album doesn't last two hours. So yeah. in theory, you'd be able to listen to a Taylor Swift album, a brand new one, as if it was a podcast. Every, every week. Every single week. Because that's what people do with podcasts, YouTube, and Netflix. So why, as a, in the music industry, do they try and create this massive event around one album every two to three years when people are bored? People look at YouTube and go, I've watched all 150 episodes of this podcast in the last two years. And you go, that's 240 hours of content in yeah. one or two years. Yeah, and, and a regular, the regular career trajectory of your average major or medium uh, big independent artist is you make a banger album first. Hopefully, if you're lucky, you make your banger album first. Your second album's always a dud. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're 1975, and it's not a dud. It always is a dud, apparently, according to the law. Third album, big. Fourth album, if you're lucky, capitalizes on that, then you're dead. That's that's like the playbook, isn't it, for releasing Which, albums? If you're thinking that albums at the moment last about half an hour, you're thinking that you might have somebody's entire recorded discography, I say three albums, a legendary three-album trilogy, and then, bam, that's it, they're done. 
they've split up or whatever. And you think that is an hour and a half of music content. That's yeah. not even the same length. So that's your entire career as a musician, you know, in recording. That's not even as long as one episode of a normal podcast. And the worst part about that is it's the exact same medium. It's recorded audio. Bad blowing. And that's what me and Peter's been talking about, just being crazy with like the way the music industry is in comparison to other industries. And I find that even stranger when you think that those two industries are side by side on like Spotify or or any of the music sites I mean, because at, they're going hand in hand. At this point, as you say, Matt, it's practically the same medium. You're using the same platforms, the same technology, the same delivery method. And yet one, you expect a two-hour-ish weekly show and it's people get disappointed if they miss one and the other maybe if you're lucky half an hour of content a year the only difference is you are expected but not always expected to listen to an album more than once but i would say that people who love podcasts probably re-listen to their favorite episodes and a lot of people i think who love music if you're trying to stay on top we all know there's an impossible amount of music to listen to so i think there's a lot of music that is only listened to once by consumers yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, take your average, if you're not a big Taylor Swift fan, there's no way you're really listening to her songs. I mean, maybe if they come on the radio, but you might check a song out here and there. You know, if you're a passive enjoyer of something like Taylor Swift's music, you just want to, you want to hear it, say, for the cultural moment. There's a lot of people like this. You want to hear it for the cultural moment, but you don't really care. And this is why the, the Spotify play counts are so strange because where where on the album did two million people who listened to clean for example not get to you are in love but why yeah. did more people listen to clean than i know places do you know mm. what i mean which is the song before it and it's is one it a of balance those, factor is it a fan it, favorite factor it's just a strange thing because if people were listening to that which obviously people don't you would assume that the songs would be neck and neck but obviously one person might listen to one song 50 times whilst the other person listens to a full album and then one the other but you know and this is why you end up with such a skewed statistic yeah because if you use from i know places to is it over there is a seven million stream margin of error obviously we're not including this love or um wildest dreams because they have that single thing they've been out ages so they're 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 um what you would call um, outliers in the the sort of the sort of table of data, but you are in love with eight eight at time of recording eight million seven hundred thousand to is it over now seventeen million one hundred seventy four thousand. That's a massive margin of of difference, like. I, as you say, that's like seven, seven million. A lot of artists don't get seven million players. So that, and that's the margin of error between people who listen and people who drop off. But as you say, it's not even a, sequen- a su- sequentially relevant drop off. It's like a uh, people just checking out whatever. So it's it's interesting. So that's been our super deep dive on Taylor Swift's 1989 Taylor's version, and also the sort of hypocrisy of odd, the audio medium content vacuum that sort of is happening with with songs compared to podcasts. It's just a funny observation, but yeah, it's one that we've had recently and um, you'll have to let us know what you think 
on the polls that we'll put down in the Spotify description and just in general. Thanks for listening. I've been Peter. I've been Mark. See you next week. <laughs>